0: We are in uh, the book of Philippians, and uh, let's take a look at our passage this morning. And it's, um, Christine, go ahead and let's put the the passage up. We'll read through it first. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12. Paul is um, speaking here, but he says, "But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes. And will rejoice. If you read your Bible, you will see that God uses a variety of teaching methods to instruct us. Uh, There are sermons in the Bible, but you may be surprised to, to know that there are very few sermons. It's not his normal way of teaching us. There are proverbs, and lots of them. There are hymns or psalms, and lots of them. There are letters to the church or to the churches. But the vast content of both Old and New Testament uh, consists of stories. Stories of people, stories of events, stories of history, and stories of prophecy. Jesus himself Uh, did preach some sermons, but most of the time he spoke in parables. Everyone loves a story. Isn't that right? Love a story. And for some reason, stories resonate with us in a way that sermons don't. And uh, lectures don't. Now, I'm not against sermons. I have preached sermons for over 40 years. So, I'm guilty as charged. I have preached plenty of sermons. But, I would ask you a question. First, when was the last time I preached? And second, what did I say? And people are looking away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That was a little little while ago. Okay. And I think you would be hard-pressed to tell me what our last preacher spoke about in detail. You might have kind of a general summary, but I think you'll be hard-pressed. Sermons don't resonate with us in the same way that stories do. But if I said to you, I gave you two names, Adam and Eve, well, you could tell me a lot about them. Why? Because it was told as a story. Job, you could tell me a lot about him. If I told you about the prodigal son, well, you could probably tell me the story from beginning to end in great detail. And whether it's stories of the Old Testament or stories of the New New Testament, they will easily come to mind for you and you'll probably even understand the application that was meant from those stories. Um, Today we're studying in Philippians 1, the passage we read, and I want to tell you a story. And that's how we're going to conduct our sermon today. It's going to be a story. And we will take this scripture and tell it as a story from the perspective of the Philippian jailer. And so let's begin. Let me tell you my story. My name is Sutsutgos. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but that is my name. I am more commonly known as the Philippian jailer, and probably for good reason. It's easier to say. I live and I work in Philippi. Philippi is a city that is uh, situated on a main uh, trade route and it is one of the most prominent cities in uh, the Roman Empire. Philippi is also a Roman colony and as a result of it being a Roman colony, it has all of the rights, everybody, every citizen in in the city have all the rights and privileges of the Roman government and the citizenship that comes with it. In our city, we are governed by Rome, we obey the laws of Rome, we conduct business as Romans, and people who are born here are Roman citizens. Philippi has the protection of the Roman military, and it benefits from the tremendous infrastructure that was provided by Rome. Caesar is our king. I grew up as a Roman citizen, was educated in the best Roman schools, and at a very early age... I decided to join the military, and I was one of the hand-picked, selected uh, military personnel of the Praetorian Guard. There were about 10,000 of us altogether, and that was my job. I worked as a military man. I received my training from the greatest and most disciplined military in the world. As you may know, Rome has conquered many of the surrounding territories, and we have established laws. We have uh, produced roads and um, aqueducts that have surpassed anything in human history. I pledged my allegiance to both Caesar and to Rome. After a successful career as a uh, guard, as one of the Praetorian Guard, I decided that I needed to spend more time with my wife and my family. And I requested that I be uh, moved to a more permanent location and I asked to be stationed in Philippi. And in Philippi, I was uh, allowed to, uh, to become the warden of the jail at Philippi. And I want to tell you, I run a tight ship. Everything that goes on in that prison, I know. And everyone who works for me does exactly what I say. I have a great team working with me and for me. Law and order, in my mind, must be kept at all costs. And anyone who would break the law or anyone who is in conflict with the Roman government must be punished, and I would inflict all punishment necessary to keep them in line. I think today, in uh, your country, that you would call me a type A personality. And that's what I was, and that's who I am. I want to tell you about something that happened to me. My prison runs like clockwork. I trust the men who serve me, and when I give them orders, they follow. I want to tell you about an event that happened about 10 years ago. Several men came to Philippi, and they created quite a stir. They had, from the, from the stories that I heard, they had met a woman down by the riverbank. Her name was Lydia. Actually, Lydia was uh, not from here originally, but she was a merchant in town. She was a seller of purple. A purple is basically a, uh, um, a seller of purple is one who takes garments and she dyes them in a special purple solution, and then she sells them. It's a, an expensive process, and she does quite well. She's well known in town, and uh, she's quite an honorable woman. These men came to her one day. And they told her about a man named Jesus Christ. And uh, they told her that Jesus Christ was in fact God who had come to this world in the flesh and had come for the sole purpose of dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. And And they told her that not only did he die, and of course, Roman cross is our form of execution. It's equivalent to your form of capital punishment. And uh, they told her that Jesus was not dying for any crimes that he had committed, but for the crimes that the world and each individual had committed against God. And they said that he was buried, and they said that he rose again the third day. And right on the spot, she believed this message. And uh, she was changed. Something changed in her, she was a different person. And she invited these messengers to come and stay with her, which they did. Well, some days went by, and uh, my day was busy like any other day with the normal routine. I had prisoners to process. Some were being sent to Rome because they had uh, to be uh, tried in higher courts to hear their cases. Some were serving their sentences. In my prison, we had to feed them. Um, with the supplies that their families had provided for their meals, and some were being released. The prison was pretty full. And this prison, I want to tell you, was state-of-the-art. It was the best that Rome could uh, build. We had iron gates, locks that could not be penetrated, stocks that were well-maintained to chain people uh, with their feet in these stocks. Chains and shackles were the finest anywhere in the world. And I had the best of professionals working for me. I ran the jail in one of the, really it was the most prominent city in this area. And uh, we were on the trade route called the Via Ignatia. And we had to keep that road open for trade and for traffic. And any robbers, anybody who would try to disrupt the trade, we had to put in jail and get them off out of the way so that the trade for Rome would continue like clockwork. And it was our duty to keep these lawbreakers out of the way of progress. That day I received a report of a commotion in town. There was a young woman in town who was a diviner. Some of you may, uh, would probably refer to as a fortune teller. I don't know what to make of all that stuff, you know. But I'll tell you, the people of Philippi were really taken with her. And uh, they would go to her for all kinds of advice. They would seek advice on their future, on their business, on love and on prosperity. And uh, she would tell them, in my mind, what, what they wanted to hear. And they would pay her good sums of money. But this woman was actually a slave. She was actually owned by very prominent men in town. And they made, they, she would tell a fortune and they would make a fortune from her. And uh, they, this woman began following Uh, these two men who were in town, actually there were more than two, there was a man named Paul, a man named Silas, somebody by the name of Luke, and there were a couple of others uh, traveling with them. And uh, she followed them everywhere they went. And she began to say out loud, um, these men are the servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. Their message is true. And for some reason, uh, this disturbed the men that, that she was saying this. Uh, out loud to people. She was well known. And actually, this was free public uh, advertising for them. And I heard reports that she had followed them for days. Now, in my day, there was no, um, what do you call it? Um, Instagram. There was no, um, sorry, Facebook. (laughs) There was no uh, anything like that. Um, and uh, But her loud voice, I mean, she proclaimed very loudly that these were, were God's servants and they, people needed to listen to her. But I think what it was was that this guy named Paul, he wasn't too happy about it because of the kind of fortunes that she would tell, the kind of things that she would tell. And uh, he wanted her to stop. And so one day he turned to her. And said that she had an evil spirit in her. And he spoke to the evil spirit and cast the evil spirit out of her so that she was no longer able to tell fortunes. It stopped immediately. And the men who owned her and profited from her were irate about this. And they began to um, uh, fight against Paul and Silas. They were outraged that they could no longer make profit from her. And so they seized these men. They brought them into the, uh, the court. Really, the court is in the, uh, the town square where all of the marketplace is, and uh, there are magistrates there. And so they brought these men before the magistrates and said, these men have come into this town. They don't belong here. They're Jews. We're Romans. They're telling us things that are unlawful to do as Romans, and uh, they've got to be stopped They're ruining our business. They're ruining our finances. They're ruining our city. And as she began to tell, they began to tell the magistrates of this, the magistrates became irate with Paul and with Silas and they took them aside and they stripped them of their clothes in the public square and they took rods and they beat them. Now in Rome, you have to know this, that it's it's lawful for them to beat them up to 40 times less one strike. And so they beat them so that their backs were bruised and opened sores and cut and bleeding. And then they, I sent some of my men down there from the prison, some of the guards, to collect them. And uh, they, the magistrate said, throw them in jail. And, he's, and they, they commanded me to put them in the innermost prison to keep them safe and to keep them secure. And so I did that. I'm a man under law. I'm a man who follows rules, just like I expect those under me to follow my rules as well. And so, in order to bring back peace, I want to say this to you, too, just as kind of an aside, that um, sometimes, even though there are laws that we are to follow, there are laws that we are to obey, it is illegal, actually, in Rome, under Roman law, to try somebody without them being able to give a defense But today, there was such a turmoil, such a tumult that we decided, the magistrates decided to just throw them in jail and get them out of the way so that we could create peace in the city again. And that's what they did. They didn't give them a fair trial, but I followed the law, I followed the rules. And I sent some of my guards to get them. We put them in jail, and uh, I put them in the innermost part of the prison, which is the most secure. And we put their feet in stocks. They had open wounds, still bleeding and we locked them behind the iron bars. No one was going to escape my prison, not on my watch. Well, night fell over town, and peace was finally restored. What a crazy day. My shift would actually take me through the night. I wasn't off until the next morning, but I had a place to sleep there at the prison, and things were quieting down. Things, to be, things seemed to be settling down in the prison as well, and things were finally beginning to close up for the night. So I decided to go to my room to lay down and go to sleep. What? I was listening to music. I could hear singing. I had never heard singing in my prison. Cursing, yes. Singing, never. So I got up out of my bed, put my sandals on, and walked down to the innermost part of the prison. And there in the middle of the prison, these two guys were singing praises and hymns to God in the middle of the night. And they were rejoicing and they were, I I stood there and I listened in, in disbelief. They were singing praises. And then they would stop and they would pray. And they would pray for each of the prisoners in the prison. And they were praying for me. I just shook my head. I said, I can't believe these guys. I would think that they would be crying out and cursing what happened to them that day, but instead they were praising their God. Well, they may not want to sleep, but I do. And so I walked back down to my room and I crawled into my bed and I put my pillow over my ears so I couldn't hear them anymore. And I fell fast asleep. And as I was drifting to sleep that night, I can remember my thoughts, how I thought about how unusual these prisoners were. We'd never had prisoners like this in our prison, ever. They claim to know God. How is it possible that a person can know God personally? They seem to have a personal connection with God. There's something about These two men that is just different than any prisoner who's ever been in these cells. And who is this Jesus that they're proclaiming? And why did he die? Why would they risk their lives to tell others about him? And why are they singing to him in prison this night? And I drifted off to sleep and I fell fast asleep that night. The next thing I knew, I was rudely awakened by a thunderous shaking of the prison. The noise was deafening, and it, it feels like the very foundation of the prison were shaken. What are the, and, and the clash of iron and, and all the noise, so I quickly jumped up out of my bed and I ran to see that the doors of every prison cell were wide open. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Roman Empire, in Roman law. But I am personally responsible for every single prisoner in that prison. And those prisoners, if they escape, my life is at stake. If I cannot give an account of every prisoner, my life is at stake. My mind swirled. I I know they were securely fastened. I fastened their feet to the stocks myself. I locked the door myself. And all these doors are wide open. And all the prisoners are gone. My neck is on the life. And fear struck my heart. Once Rome hears this, I'm dead. This is on me. And I can't uh, bear to have my family put through the process of the court case and then me being put to death And so I grabbed my sword and I put it in such a position that I was going to fall on it and commit suicide that night. And just as I was about to do that, I heard a cry from the inner prison. That guy named Paul cried out to me and he said, stop, don't do this. We're all here. All the prisoners are here. Don't do yourself any harm. Unbelievable. All of these prisoners had a golden opportunity to flee. And they were all there, every one of them in a cell. And so I called one of my Guards And I said, bring me a light. And he brought me a torch. And I went through the prison and I saw that every single prisoner was still in the prison in spite of what uh, had happened that night. And I ran to the cell where I, I had bound Paul and Silas and I fell down on my knees before them. And I don't mind telling you that I was trembling like a leaf. I was shaking so much because I was that close to death. And I said to them, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I later learned a verse that uh, Paul had written to a church, and I think it applies and it fits so well in this story of mine. For the Word of God is living and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And I realized for the very first time that night that God was speaking to me. I had ignored him for so long and it took this destructive earthquake and a near suicide to wake me up to the fact that I was a sinner in need of a savior I was afraid of what Rome might do to me but now as I as I trembled before these men I feared what God would do to me for my sin and my sinful heart was exposed and I knew these men had the answer I brought them out of the cell. And and again, as I said, I said to them, what must I do to be saved? And it was so simple. The answer they gave me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. That salvation is open to me and to my household. And right there on the jailhouse floor, I bowed my knees and my heart. And I believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and he rose again the third day. And, and right there and then in this prison, I knew that my sins were forgiven. And I also wanted my family to know. And I, so I brought Paul and Silas home with me. And even though it was very early in the morning, I brought the prisoners home with, with me as well, the, the, the two, Paul and Silas. And my family was already awake from the earthquake, of course. And Paul and Silas shared the same good news with them. And wonderfully, Each one of them, my wife and my children, each one of them trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior that very hour. My children, they were not babies. They were old enough to understand the gospel and they believed. And I sensed even in that short time from the distance of the prison to my home that something had radically changed in my heart and in my life. I had always been very cruel to prisoners. I had always loved the fact that uh, I stood firm on the laws of of Rome. And if they were meant to be beaten, I would be the first in line. But here I saw their wounds, the wounds that had been inflicted by the Roman soldiers just the night before, earlier in that, the the night before, or that afternoon. And I saw them in a different way. And I went and I got some water and a cloth And I began to wipe away the blood and to give salve to the wounds that we had inflicted upon them. Before sunrise, Paul and Silas had already taught us about baptism. That baptism was a sign, an outward sign of what had already taken place in our hearts and that we were to be baptized. And before sun rose... We went down to the river, and there we were baptized, me and my household. I brought the men back to my home from there, and I prepared for them a hearty breakfast. And I I sensed a profound joy had overtaken me. The salvation is what I had been missing in my entire life. And I will never forget that night when Paul and Silas led me to the Lord. And I believed the gospel and I was saved and my entire house with me. Such joy, such rejoicing. I was a prisoner of my own sins and I had been set free by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will never forget that day. I have to tell you that I know that what happened to Paul and Silas that day had to be very stressful to them. And they endured Terrible humiliation, terrible pain. And at the time, I couldn't understand why they were singing in the midst of their ordeal. But I have come to realize now, 10 years later, that had they not come to town that day, and had they not been irritated by that fortune teller, and had they not rebuked her and cast out the demon from her, none of this would have happened to them. Had they never been arrested, had they never been beaten, had they never been cast into my prison, I know firsthand the suffering resulted in my salvation. It's a lesson I need to take to heart. I keep thinking about that. Over the last 10 years, I've thought about this over and over again. What if they hadn't come to town? What if this had never happened? They suffered that I might hear the gospel and be saved. Now, when it happened, they could not have known that was the Lord's plan for them at the time. But after it happened, they rejoiced in the Lord in spite of the circumstances. And I need to continually learn that lesson as well, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When the sun finally rose, the magistrates sent court officers to have me release Paul and Silas, saying, let those men go. I think they realized overnight that what they had done was wrong. It was a complete disservice to the men, and it was against the law of Rome. And they wanted to release the men, just sweep it all under a rug. And I told Paul and Silas the good news that they were free to go, but Paul said no. I'm not going to allow them to hide their unlawful behavior. See, the magistrates had conducted an illegal hearing. They had not given Paul and Silas an opportunity to defend themselves. They had publicly humiliated and beaten them, thrown them in prison. And then Paul, brought, Paul drops a bombshell and he says they did this to an uncondemned Roman. And as soon as he said the word Roman, fear struck my heart as it did the magistrates when I told them. Because Paul should have been given all of the rights and all of the privileges of a fair and proper hearing as a Roman citizen. And he was treated illegally, not only for a Roman citizen, for any citizen, but especially for a Roman citizen. Paul made a point that the magistrates must come themselves and get them out of prison. And they must publicly demonstrate by doing this that, that these men had done nothing wrong. And the magistrates came and they took them out of prison. And they asked Paul and Silas to please leave the city. But Paul and Silas, they went back to that lady, Lydia's house, and they met with all of us who were believers. And the church was born in Philippi. We hosted the church in my home, and all who were, all who first believed had a great love for Paul and Silas. Why? Well, because they were the men who brought the good news to us. And so we loved them and we loved everything that they were doing in in getting the gospel out to other people as well. And so they felt the Lord wanted them to go to another city and spread the gospel there and to another city. And so as we followed them, not literally followed them, but as we heard of their journeys uh, from city to city, we talked amongst ourselves and said, hey, why don't we participate with them? And I remember saying, somebody saying that, hey, you know what? I'm not an evangelist. God hasn't given me the gift of an evangelist. But maybe we can share in the fruit of an evangelist, the reward of an evangelist, by giving financially to them. And somebody else said, well, I'm not a teacher, and Paul is a teacher, and, and so is uh, Silas, and, and I can't teach. But we, we talked and we said, look, maybe we're not teachers, but let's share in the work that we might also receive the fruit or the reward with them, the reward of a teacher as well. And so we began to share with them. And as as often as we could, we would find a way of getting funds to them so that they could continue on with the work of the Lord in getting the gospel out and, and teaching new believers. We wanted to share in the work and in the reward with them. You know, as we grew in the Lord, we read um, some of the, the gospel accounts and we saw that Jesus taught that um, we can't take our treasure with us. It's all gonna, when we die, it's all left behind. As someone said in your century, there are no U-Hauls that follow you to the grave. And so we would give generously. Not not that I say this to boast, but I, we realized that by using unrighteous mammon, unrighteous money, we could actually gain an eternal reward. What's the downside of that? And so we gave. Because we learned that there's no recession in heaven. There's no stock market tumbles, no market fluctuations. The investment is worth it, and the Lord promises to reward such giving with an interest that is beyond anything that you could ever earn in this life. Well, that's my story. But I want you to know that we just received a letter from Paul. We love to hear news about Paul. We love to hear news about what he's doing, but we got a letter from him. And it turns out, you'll never believe it, he's back in prison. Yep, prison again. But not in my prison, not in Philippi. He's in the prison of Rome. Let me explain what happened. Paul had gone to Jerusalem with a gift to help poor believers in Jerusalem um, who were suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And when he got there, uh, he had a Gentile with him, and uh, there was a commotion that took place. The Jews began to be incensed by this and accused him falsely of bringing the Gentile into the uh, temple with him, and there was a riotous commotion, and Paul had to be snatched away from those who were ready to kill him, And eventually he was escorted uh, under heavy guard, 470 soldiers to Caesarea. And he was confined to a house prison there in Caesarea at Herod's palace. But the case was never resolved. And he was there in this house arrest for two years. And about this time he probably got fed up with the whole system. You know, things kind of drag. I think it's like your court systems in America. They kind of drag and drag and drag, and and finally he appealed to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, that's it. He's got to go to Caesar. And so they took him through kind of an ordeal. They took him to Rome. Now, in Rome, he was allowed to be in a house, but he had to rent it. The, The government did not pay for his house. He had to rent the facility. And uh, the government did provide for him something 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two years. And that was a guard who was shackled to him by about an 18 inch chain. I think we call it a furlong. And uh, he was held bound by this chain for two years while he waited for his trial. Now I don't know about you but I think of my own life. I know what it's like to be in prison situations, but to be bound to somebody for two years, would you like that? And I don't mean would you like to be chained. I know the answer to that is no. But I mean, would your faith shine so strongly before these people chained to you that they would know that you're a Christian? Would you bow the knee with them chained to you every morning, every night, and pray to the Lord. Maybe pray out loud so that they could hear what you're actually saying. When you eat, would you pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the food that was provided for you that day? Paul was a captive, but no, he wasn't. They were his captive audience every single day. You know, I expected Paul to do that. For goodness sakes, he was singing in my prison. Why wouldn't he do that in this prison? Paul had the freedom to have guests visit him. And these were people who were believers. And they came to ask him questions about the Lord and the future and life and and, and living. And and he would tell them all that he knew from the Scripture and all that the Lord had taught him. And these guys would listen every day to his, his counsel and his messages. And before long, some of these guards... And these were elite guards. They were part of the Praetorian Guard. These were men who were hand-selected to be the elite of the military. These were men who uh, protected uh, Caesar. These were men who protected government officials. These were men who were stationed in prominent positions where they would always be on guard for those who were in power. They were the best of the best. And these men, chained to Paul heard the gospel message over and over and over again. And many of them believed. I've often wondered why the Lord allowed Paul to be imprisoned so many times and for such long periods of time. And I have often thought, wouldn't it be better for him to remain free and to preach to a wider audience? But I only have to look at my own story to realize that God has a plan and a purpose for everything that takes place in a believer's life. And had Paul not been falsely accused and arrested and thrown into my prison, I probably wouldn't even be saved. And such a thought makes me shudder. I would still be lost in my sins. I would still be on my way to hell. I know that about three years ago, Paul wrote this in a letter to, Romans, to the Roman church he said, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And I can testify today that what happened in Philippi did work together for good. I was saved. An assembly sprang up from there. We shared in the work, the forward work of the gospel with Paul and, and others, and uh, people were saved, and people are going to heaven today today because of what God allowed in Philippi. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. It may not look like it at the time, but be patient. God hasn't finished the whole story yet. I was greatly encouraged when I got this letter from Paul, uh, a letter to, to, to me, to all of us at Philippi. And I know he's writing from the prison in Rome But listen to what he says. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. There he is again. It's like he's singing all over again. I know it looks terrible that I've been in prison for two years and then I was transferred here for another two years. I know it looks awful that I'm in prison. But God is at work. The gospel is going out and in ways I never could have predicted What an incredible testimony he has. There's no whining on Paul's part. He's actually rejoicing, just like he did in my prison in Philippi. Remember what I told you. Paul was singing with Silas at midnight, bound in chains, but praising the Lord. And here he is 10 years later, and that's still his attitude as he awaits his trial before Caesar. In fact, later in this letter, Paul instructs us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is a man whose joy just oozes out of his pores. Let me read on and show you how his imprisonment is furthering the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard. (laughs) These were my co-workers. These were my compatriots. These were the guys I served with. These are my buddies, and Paul is speaking to them, and he's, and not only to them, to all the rest. You know who all the rest are? The house the very household of Caesar. Not only do these men have access to Paul, but they also, after they leave their, their duty there, they go into the household of Caesar. And these guys have not kept quiet about their newfound faith. And they have talked to some of the family members of Caesar's household, and they have become Christians as well. Wow. So it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, that is those believers here in Rome, Uh, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul didn't even have to do all the work. He basically is sitting still in this prison telling each individual who comes to him about the Lord and they're out spreading the gospel and people are hearing about it and getting saved. So once again, we see that um, all things work together for good to those who love God. Paul loves the Lord, and the Lord loves him, that's for sure. And what appears to us as a setback, and as something wrong and evil, and a trial and a test, is meant by the Lord to further his work. And Paul sees that clearly. I sure hope that I can see that clearly next time a trial comes my way. The gospel goes out in ways we do not expect, and the Lord clearly knows what He is doing. Who can stand against the Lord? Job said that, 41, Job 41, verse 10. He says, Who then is able to stand against me? Well, the answer is obvious no one. No one can stand against the Lord. But another thing we know is that God is for us, He's not against us. And even if we face the, the sorest trial of our life, if you're a believer, God is not against you. He is for you. And nothing shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The entire army, in fact, the Praetorian Guard, the elite army of Rome, cannot stop the gospel from going forward. As a matter of fact, it's as a result of Paul's imprisonment that they are the ones who are taking the gospel out. What a, what a way! God has uh, done this. Some have suggested that I was once a member of the Praetorian Guard before seeking a change of duty. Um, And that's why Paul mentions so specifically the Praetorian Guard here. Although I am unable to tell you what is on my resume, you may also read Paul's final greetings here in this book. And see that, that Paul says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. You form your own opinion of where I worked before. If you're not from around here, or even from this first century, you may not be familiar with the Praetorian Guard, but I've told you about them. They are bodyguards of political figures. They're the elite. They're the... Uh, top of the line. And Paul has one chain to him every shift, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I want to say again to you that the one thing I've learned both when Paul was here in Philippi and from this letter, that um, God can take the harshest trials, the most difficult days, the endless illness, the toughest circumstances, and turn them around for our good and for his glory. You know, the more I read the Bible, the more I see this truth over and over again. Do you remember the man Joseph in the Old Testament? At 17 years of age, he had had a dream. Actually, he had had two dreams. And in the dreams, they, the Lord had told him about how he was going to rule even over his own family. And that disturbed his brothers. And one day when he went out to see of their well-being, they saw him and they, want, they plotted to kill him. And they said, no, 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 let's not kill him. We can make money off of him. Let's sell him. And so they sold him into slavery uh, to a, a band of traders that were on their way to Egypt. Then he was a slave. But I want to ask you, how could God bring evil or God bring good, I should say, out of this evil thing that happened to Joseph. How could God bring good out of that? I mean, that's terrible. To treat your own brother this way, your own flesh and blood. How could God bring good out of this evil? He was sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. It seemed like a pretty good gig because Potiphar was an officer of the Pharaoh. He was a captain of the guard. But Potiphar's wife was a seductress. And when Joseph refused her advances, she falsely accused him. He was thrown into prison. There's kind of a theme here about prisons. But it kind of appeals to me as a a prison warden. I get it. He was thrown into jail. And I have to ask you the question again. How could God bring good out of this evil? In the Egyptian prison, we read in the Psalms that they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in iron. Do you want me to tell you about that? Don't have time. He showed himself to be an upstanding prisoner. And when Pharaoh's, two of Pharaoh's um, servants were confined in prison, Joseph they had dreams and Joseph interpreted those dreams for them. One of them was going to be killed and was, and one of them was going to be spared and was, would be brought back before Pharaoh to serve him again. And during that time, Joseph said to him, Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me, make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house, this prison. Was Joseph happy there? Well, he served, and he did well, and he he was raised to the highest level he could be in that prison, but he knew it was wrong. It was not the place where he should be. And he was unhappy being there and wanted to be free. How could God bring good out of this evil? And so he said to them, I indeed was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. I have also done nothing here that they should put me in this dungeon. But the servant got back to his position and he forgot completely about Joseph. Forgot he even existed. The guy that told him he was going to have his life spared. And he just forgot about him. And Joseph languished in prison on and on. Clearly, Joseph didn't want to be there. Nobody asks for a trial in life. Nobody wants a trial in life. How many of you sign up for one every morning and say, oh, you know what, This today would be a good day for a trial? Nobody wants that. But trials come. And when you ask yourself, and we have to ask about Joseph and about Paul and about all of us who have ever gone through trials, how can God bring good out of this circumstance, out of this trial? Well, you know the rest of the story. You've read the Bible yourself. God did not forget Joseph. And at just the right time, Pharaoh had a dream. And no one could interpret the dream. And that's when the servant remembered, oh yeah, there was a guy who interpreted my dream. And Joseph was raised, was brought out, interpreted the dream, and Pharaoh recognized the truth of the interpretation and and raised Joseph to be second in command over all of Egypt and gave him freedom to do whatever he wanted. Um, And and Pharaoh uh, let him have that command. And when his, as Joseph began to uh, put food aside for the famine that was about to come, They stored it up in storehouses, and eventually the famine struck Egypt, and eventually the the famine spread to surrounding countries, including uh, to Joseph's family, and finally they had to come to Egypt to get food, and when his brothers came to Egypt to buy food, they bowed down before this unrecognizable ruler, their own brother, the thing they said they would never do, and God brought them to their knees. Just as God had said, when Joseph revealed himself to them, I can tell you, they were terribly afraid. But by the time Joseph understood, by, the time, by this time, Joseph understood that the Lord was in this whole ordeal right from the start. And had he quoted from a New Testament verse that wasn't there yet, he would have said, "All things work together for good, to those who love God and are called according to His purpose." But this is what He said for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he said again, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And again, he said, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And as the icing on the cake, he said to his brothers, but as for you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it. For good, to save many people alive. Now, he said, Don't be afraid. I will provide for you and I will provide for your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So, as a Philippian jailer, I read the scripture and I see the story of Joseph, but I'm reminded, even in reading that story, of my brother Paul in prison in Rome. And he says in his letter to us that though he is in chains, he has been able to preach Christ and that other believers in Rome have become more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul tells us that there are some in town who are preaching Christ, but with mixed motives from envy and strife and some also from from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Even in the midst of this evil, Paul saw saw that both sides, those who were doing it in the wrong way and those who were doing it in the right way were at least preaching the gospel. At least the gospel was going forward. Some preachers wanted to add to Paul's afflictions and probably said it was his own fault for being in prison in the first place or that he deserved it or some other uh, terrible thing that they would say. And Paul said, you know what, look, it's not about me, it's about the message and the message was going forward and that's what he rejoiced in because he saw that the gospel was going forward. I believe it was in your era or close to your era that there were two godly preachers, one was named Charles Spurgeon, another was named um, Dwight L. Moody and they were very different people. One served the Lord primarily in Great Britain. One served primarily in the United States. But one day, uh, Moody went to England to preach the gospel. They came from very different... um, They were both saved. They were both believers. They were both preaching the gospel. But they came from very different um, theological camps. Charles Spurgeon ran a school... And uh, he was training up interns, shall we say, or or young preachers to to preach the gospel and to serve in churches throughout Great Britain. And uh, one day he said to his students, let's go and hear what uh, Moody has to say in his message. And Moody was having these grand open air meetings and preaching the gospel to thousands, thousands of people were turning out. And there was a little bit of jealousy, not between Spurgeon and Moody, but, but some of the young men kind of felt bad about this, and that, you know, hey, who is this guy taking over our territory? Who is this guy coming in here and, and uh, preaching the way he's preaching? And, and after all, he doesn't go to our church, and after all, he doesn't uh, believe every single thing that we believe, and uh, he, he's just up to no good. And they began to think this way. And so they went to one of his meetings one day, and after the meeting, one of the students kind of, you know, in his uh, you know, nose stuck up high, and he said to Spurgeon, he said, Mr. Spurgeon, do you think we're going to see Mr. Moody in, in heaven? He was doubting his salvation. And Spurgeon was a wise man. He says to a student, no, I don't think we will see him in heaven. The man was satisfied that he, was, he had pegged him right. Moody wasn't going to heaven. But Spurgeon wasn't finished. He said, no, I don't think we'll see him in heaven. He said, you know, I think, I think Moody is going to be so close to Jesus And we are going to be on the outskirts of that crowd that we won't even be able to see them in heaven. But I think this is what Paul was talking about, that there are some who preach the gospel out of envy or or false motives or or wrong motives. They're still believers, but they have conflict with one another. And Paul is discouraged in one sense by that, that there should be conflict at all. But he says, the thing that makes me rejoice... Is that Christ is preached. As long as Jesus Christ is preached and the gospel message goes out that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again, and that anyone who believes this gospel message is saved, he said, That's what makes me rejoice. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And so as I reflect on the life of our brother Paul, I'll never forget the day I was saved in the Philippian jail. I see the same outstanding character that Paul still has today, his only goal, his only reason for living, his work, his love, his joy is to preach Christ crucified. And no matter what the circumstances that he finds himself in, that is something I want to follow how about you? No matter what the Lord brings your way, no matter what circumstances you face, no matter what trial comes your way, rejoice in the Lord always and preach Christ. It's clear that God can deliver Paul just as he delivered him from my prison. And as he did Joseph, and I might add Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, Abednego, Esther, Job, while well, the list goes on and on. So many others. And God can deliver you from whatever trial or circumstance that you're in as well. But even if he doesn't continue to preach Christ, continue to rejoice in him, is he able? Yes, God is able. We sang that. He's able to deliver you preach Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you're chained or you're not chained. Preach Christ. And he is able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord, as we end this meeting this morning, we thank you and praise you for what you did in the life of Paul, in the life of this Philippian jailer in the life of so many other believers who have gone before us. They are a testimony and a witness to us of your saving power, of your ability to deliver out of trials and circumstances. And Lord, we think of the psalm that says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And Lord, we thank you for your promise to us. And we pray that we might have that same attitude, that same joy and rejoicing that Paul had and Silas had as they sang in prison and as they wrote this letter, as, as Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, we pray, Lord, that our hearts might be filled with the joy of the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.